I'm Stuart Dresner, founder and chief executive of Privacy Laws and Business, now in our 36th year. Today, I'm having a conversation with Ian Corby, executive director of the Age Verification Providers Association and project manager of EU Consent, based in London. Hello, Ian. Hello, Stuart. So um, today, the title of our podcast is Age Verification and Estimation by Companies to Protect the Privacy and Safety Online for Young People. So welcome, everyone, to this Privacy Pass podcast, the latest in this series from Privacy Laws and Business, PLMB, the publisher of monthly PLMB UK and international reports and organizer of webinars and once again, fortunately, in-person events. So visit privacylaws.com for the full range of our services. Now, on to our subject. Everyone agrees that young people should be safe online. But how should organisations behave in an ethical way? How to reconcile the commercial objectives of data acquisition and retention and the legal objective of data minimization and data protection by design? Principles in the GDPR, of course. Now, there are initiatives on online safety for young people by the United Nations, the OECD, the Council of Europe, the European Commission, and at national level by the national data protection authorities, for example, in the United Kingdom, Ireland, and France. All are trying to protect the best interests of the child. Now, while everyone can agree that there is a continuum as children mature into teenagers and then into adults, regulations impose specific ages when content should be restricted. The United States has COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, for which the threshold is 13. Other countries have other ages for permitting young people to access protected content. And this is the issue at the core of attempts at regulation to better protect young people online from content of a violent or sexual nature or increasing the risk that they will be led to the consumption of tobacco, alcohol, gambling and other dangerous and inappropriate content. So let's start in. When was the Age Verification Providers Association established? It was actually set up in 2018, but has its um, history in uh, another organisation called the Digital Policy Alliance. And this was a uh, a group established around um, the formation of the Digital Economy Act in the UK, which was the first sort of marquee piece of legislation trying to regulate the online economy. Um, And I think it's worth just pausing to think about why we do what we do in terms of online age verification. And and all we're trying to do is to take what have been the norms of society for many decades and apply those online. So just as you wouldn't expect to walk around a large city and see children walking unimpeded into a strip club or a casino or a bookmaker's, we're trying to create the same level of protection in the online world. And I think that's becoming ever more important as we talk a lot more now about the metaverse. I mean, we already saw through COVID how much more of our lives have moved online. Um, But that is a trend which is clearly going to continue and accelerate, um, backed by some of these large global organisations. Right. Um, So that's the um, background to the establishment of the Age Verification Provider Association. Now, could you explain more about its role? Yes, well, we have, I suppose I could explain this both formally and informally. So our sort of formal objectives are to inform and educate the public industry and media on age verification or AV, as I may sometimes call it, solutions and technology. 
to promote a positive image of AV and the industry and to represent the industry to regulators and lawmakers um, to take forward practical, socially responsible age checks online. What does that mean in practice? Well, um, we're here to try to develop global markets around age verification. Um, and what we'd ideally like is to see those um, be extended on a fairly common basis because it makes lives a lot easier for everybody, as I'll explain a bit later. Um, obviously, communications, and that involves explaining the technology, reassuring people um, that it is at its heart privacy protecting, and then building out standards, because a lot of people could simply claim that they were doing age checks online. Um, but if you're just being asked to tick a box or to type in a, a date of birth, and in some cases it won't even accept a date of birth that makes you too young to access what it is they're trying to sell you, um, then that's not really what we would class as age verification. So we're quite focused on existing and new standards as well. Yes, and young people can be quite proficient at finding their way around protections. So the uh, process of age verification estimation is clearly important. Now, which types of organisation are your members who have a common interest in, in this process of age verification? And in which countries are they based? Well, we have quite a wide range, actually. So there were a number of startups. I mean, the, the, the co-chair of our organisation, Alistair Graham, set up his company when he'd seen his um, young nephew um, watching children's television. The mother went out of the room and the nephew, quick as a flash, switched across to watching YouTube on the smart TV and was watching some kids bullying other children on television. Um, his mum didn't even know you could get YouTube on their television. Um, and it was at that point that Alistair realised that probably kids, uh, sorry, parents need help in looking after their children, just in the same way as we allow kids to go to a newsagent. We don't expect a parent to watch over their shoulder when we think they're going out to buy sweets at the newsagent to make sure they're not pulling something off the top shelf. Um, and so it needs to be a, a shared responsibility to keep people safe. So we have small companies and we also have large um, listed companies um, in the UK and the US. Um, we've got members as far afield as Canada and Australia uh, and a number of European countries as well, particularly given the impact of European legislation um, in terms of requiring age assurance for a wide range of, 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 of reasons. Right. And I, may I assume that the names of the companies uh, are on your website. So if anyone wants to dig into that further, they can find them there. Uh, they are indeed. We, we have the website avpassociation.com and, and everything's there, including sort of some high level guides as to what, what kinds of age verification methodologies are offered by each of the different companies. Good. Well, that leads me on to my next question. How do companies verify or estimate the age of young people in order to comply with the regulations? Which methods do they use? Well, if we start with what you might think of as traditional age verification, uh, and obviously it's not a very long tradition because this is an industry which is quite young, um, but that typically involves um, looking at uh, government issued ID. So that might be a national data, national identity card, a, a passport or a driving license. Um, but not in the way that perhaps uh, in the early days of the Internet, there was a sort of rather rudimentary process of scanning in a, an image of your um, passport and then just emailing that to the supplier. It's a bit more sophisticated than that these days, right the way up to reading the chip that is embedded into those documents and confirming that when you take a, a live selfie or a short video, 
that you are the actual person who matches the photograph that's embedded in that chip. And therefore, we can be very, very certain that it's the right person claiming to be the right age. Um, but we could also look at uh, credit reference agencies um, or whether you have a credit card. Um, mobile phone companies, particularly in the UK, but increasingly across Europe, distinguish between their customers who have proven themselves to be adults and those who are not yet proven to be adults. So that's another potential source. Um, and of course, the electoral roll. Now, some of these are more suited to when you're ordering age restricted goods. And we know those are going to go to a particular address because otherwise you could effectively just borrow the phone book um, and, and pick, pick a name, Stuart Dresner, from the phone book, give, give Stuart's details and then still qualify to order um, a crate of beer to your house. So um, you've got to get the right method for the right circumstance. But those are your traditional age verification techniques. Right. OK. And presumably the more dangerous the product, the higher the level of um, identification of age would, would play. Yeah, proportionality is absolutely critical to this. Um, and you know, what we don't want is to ask people to jump through hoops um, to prove their age to the nearest degree when perhaps they're doing something much less risky like i don't know looking at a, a a kid's website but a kid's website that has some slightly scary elements to it where certainly in the uk under the the recent children's code issued by the ico uh, you're expected to distinguish between older and younger children but they only give broad age ranges in the in that guidance and so there's some discretion there um, and so you wouldn't necessarily need to know somebody's exact date of birth in order to be able to implement that sort of law. Whereas if you're selling somebody a hunting knife where there's a very strict moratorium on sending that, selling those to under 18s, you would want to know that at least today was their 18th birthday. Right. Uh, that makes perfect sense. Um, now, does artificial intelligence play a role? It seems to be playing a role increasingly in various aspects of society. And uh, does it play a role here in this area? Yes. And this is where we've introduced a sort of new term um, of age estimation, which complements age verification. Um, and we can use various techniques. Um, some of those involve biometrics, such as um, facial analysis or voice print analysis. Um, others are more behavioural. So we look at how you might use language or how you might use a games controller if you're playing a game. Um, and essentially anything which changes on average, as you get older, in terms of how you look or sound or behave, is susceptible to being analysed by artificial intelligence. And you can do that individually or in combination to get a, a ever increasingly more accurate solution. But to, to give you an, just some figures on the, the most widely used, which is perhaps facial estimation, um, there, one of the leading providers, you know, it's the mean average error it's, it's achieving for people of all age groups, so six to 60, is 2.8 years. Um, so you know, generally speaking, it's pretty accurate. But actually, when it's looking at six to 12 year olds, that's down as low as 1.3. And for 13 to 19 year olds, 1.55. So broadly speaking, for the key ages we're looking at, which are young people, we're within a year and a half average error in terms of determining um, what their age is simply by asking them to take a selfie. Well, that's uh, very, very good. And um, and I, I think always the, re the regulators want to know, is the 
an organization making a real effort if it makes a mistake in some cases with some who some are blessed with young looks or whatever uh, or, or they're older than they appear uh, if the organization can show that they have made a, a a real effort to to get it right. I think that's always a very good defensive position. And that's yes, and, 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 yeah, and just to, to speak to that, I mean, we're looking at the moment, um, there's an audit practice, the, the age check certification scheme, which, you know, qualifies all these different techniques. And they are actually working with the ICO to to look at how best we should measure different techniques and their accuracy, because clearly you want the vast majority of results to be as close as possible to the actual age. But equally, you want to make sure that there aren't too many results that are so far from the actual age as to undermine the credibility and the integrity of the whole system. So there's always going to be a question for regulators as to what degree of variance they're willing to tolerate, because, of course, no system of artificial intelligence is ever going to be 100 percent perfect. But I would just add to that that none of those traditional systems I mentioned of age verification are 100 percent perfect either. We know that many passports are lost and stolen, um, that people do tamper with proof of age. You know, they, they, they find ways to try to um, you know, create fraudulent age credentials. So even that doesn't achieve 100 percent. And arguably, with something like facial age estimation, you don't have to worry about whether the person has nicked somebody else's credentials because the only person you're checking is the person in front of the camera at that point in time. So authentication, as we describe it, checking the person owns the evidence is you know prima facie there because it is literally the face of the person that you're you're looking at and with a wide enough margin for error we can be extremely sure that we've got the right age so for example if you're testing to see if somebody looks over 25 based on artificial intelligence then most of the software in our industry will be guaranteeing that 99% of people are at least 18 so only one in 100 might just test to look over 25 when they are in fact under 18. And that's a pretty right. strong uh, record, I would suggest. Right, that, that uh, is an impressive uh, result. Um, now, is it possible for some companies to estimate or verify an age without, without revealing a person's identity? Or does it always tie in with a person's identity? That, that, that's a very good question. I, I, to, to some extent, it depends on how you want to define identity. So if we've been talking about facial recognition or sorry, facial estimation, I should say, important distinction there. Um, if, if by merely showing somebody a selfie, you feel you have revealed your identity, then yes, you've had to share your identity in order to prove your age. But bearing in mind that you're only revealing that image in a very transitory way, just long enough for the artificial intelligence to do its work and to come up with an estimate, that image is then potentially immediately deleted. So you don't need to retain the image. You can simply be remembered as user number one, two, three, or, or Mickey Mouse, if you prefer, when you set yourself up, um, whose date, who, who's been estimated to be over 25, you know, on a particular date in time. And that's all that the age verification provider needs to remember. Where we can guarantee your anonymity is then in terms of what we tell the websites that you're going to go and visit, because all we tell them is yes or no to a question. Is Ian over 18? Is Ian under 18? Is he under 13? Is he over 21? They set the question. We just give the answer yes or no. And that's really important because effectively what we're creating is a double blind system where the website you're trying to access doesn't know who you are. 
And the age verification provider itself doesn't retain any record of which websites each individual visited, because there was, I think, a reasonable concern around the Digital Economy Act that it would be a hacker's charter and that we would create great big databases full of your online behavior. So if you had a penchant for dwarf porn, you know, that might be held on a database somewhere which could be hacked and then you could find yourself embarrassed or, or blackmailed. Um, and so the only way to have a, a, a non-hackable database is no database at all. And that's essentially the, 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 the basis of our entire industry. The architecture is all around guaranteeing privacy. Well, that sounds really efficient system. That sounds very impressive. Now, moving on from the details of how your members operate to how your organization works to represent your members. Um, so, so which organizations do you interact with? Um, who are you aiming to influence and in putting over the message of what your members are doing? Well, it's a, right, a, a wide range of stakeholders. I would sort of start with governments and regulators where we're trying to, first of all, explain to them really what I've just been explaining to you today, that we can we can do this accurately and in a privacy preserving way. Um, ideally, we would like regulators to adopt a similar approach around the world, because otherwise you end up with a slightly different rules for each different good or content or service in each different jurisdiction, which then is going to be very messy technically to to try and deliver solutions for each of those individually um, we then obviously addressing clients and trying to persuade potential websites that wish to adopt age assurance that they should do so in this um, standards-based way and that creates a level playing field for them all so that's better for competition because clearly if you're selling bottles of wine and um, a competitor is selling bottles of wine, but one of them is doing rigorous age verification and the other one's just playing lip service to it, then that's going to be an unfair competitive advantage for the one who's getting away with not doing proper age checks. So by by using, we've got the BSI, um, the, the Public Available Specification 1296, which has been around since 2018, which is the current basis for the industry. Um, but we're also working with the um, a, a couple of other industry bodies to create new standards, which will modernise those and, and create that level playing field. And then finally, um, the public, the broader public and, and, and some campaign groups within the public who are perhaps more sensitive about privacy issues and um, data protection than others, where you know, we, we just have to keep explaining over and over again why good quality, certified, audited age verification done to these international standards is going to protect their privacy by design. Right. OK, well, then, so you're operating both at national level and international level. Now, uh, part of your um, description is that you work with the EU consent framework, as probably many people have not heard of that. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So we, we were very conscious. I mean, the age verification industry, as I said, is quite new and uh, websites could do age checks for themselves um, or some of the big um, global leviathans, you might describe them, could step in and do it instead. And it would actually be relatively easy for the Googles and Metas of this world to take all the data that they already hold on us and use that to come up with pretty good age estimates. Um, and that would be terribly convenient. Um, but I'm not sure many of us would be entirely comfortable with having to go through those large companies to prove our age every time we wanted to do something online. And I'm fairly sure the competition authorities wouldn't be happy about that either. Um, but we did have to prove that we were just as convenient. 
And that means we don't want to become the new cookie pop-up where every time you go to a website with any sort of data processing or any kind of content that might be harmful to a child, you have to pull out your passport and go through a brand new age check. And so what we were working on anyway was a, a interoperability so that when you've done an age check with one provider, it can be recognized by other providers and then reused. And it just so happened fortuitously that the European Commission, um, sort of urged on by the um, European Parliament, put out a, a call for a proposal a couple of years ago to come up with a, a better infrastructure to support age assurance um, and parental consent, which is a you know, quite a specific requirement within the world of age assurance, where, where children are too young to give consent themselves under Article 8 of GDPR, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, um, they, they need they need their parents' consent as well. And that sort of ranges between ages of 13 and 16 across Europe. So um, the European Union was looking for um, a solution for this. We, we joined a consortium with a number of technical providers, but also with some, some academics um, from you know, uh, the LSE, Sonia Livingston, and the University of Leiden, Simone van der Hoff, um, very hot on both children's rights and privacy. Um, to try and come up with a best practice approach to a European wide system for age verification and parental consent, which um, facilitates uh, interoperability. And we've done that building a, a very similar infrastructure to what you find with the European identity system, EIDAS. And essentially what it means is when you've done your first age check, um, the European consent system uh, allows you, if you choose to accept a cookie, which means the next time you go to another website, their AV provider can see that cookie and go, oh, turns out Ian's already done an age check. I'll redirect him back to the original provider where he did his check and ask that provider to confirm back to me that I can tell my client Ian's old enough to go onto this website. And that requires a trust framework. It requires standards because we, we, we can't share age checks unless we're all doing them to the same level of quality. And that's what we've been building and have recently completed a pilot across five countries with 1600 adults and children trying out the service for real. Uh, we've learned a lot from that, but essentially the technology, the underlying technology did work and allowed people to reuse their age checks from site to site. So we're very excited about that. And that's due to go live um, in the summer. Well, that that's marvellous. And uh, it's for, fortuitous, I suppose, that all this energy and work has been done during the COVID period when so much of our lives have gone online. So in some ways, it's good that your industry's members are working hard and that you're being checked by interested academics to ensure that the methods are rigorous and properly applied. So I think that's, that's, that's a very interesting initiative there. And the final thing really is that uh, we've just talked now about the, what's happening at EU level. Is there a role for international standards? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we're working for the with the Institute of Ele Electrical and Electronic Engineers, the IEEE, um, and of course the International Standards Organization, the ISO, to create in the in the in the case of the former a sort of best practice guide to age verification, which uh, an AV provider can use with their client to demonstrate they've gone through a step by step process of assessing where they want to be compliant, which are the relevant regulations in that jurisdiction looking at the data they have available to them to say, well, what's the best method we've got based on the data we already have and what extra data would we need to ask our users in order to be able to complete that check? Uh, and then doing so in a, a privacy-preserving way. And we're, we're doing that in partnership with the Five Rights Foundation. So we're also making sure that it's intelligible to children um, and that you know, 
people's um, rights are properly explained so that children could understand what an age check is and why they're doing it. And then at the ISO level, a broader framework to sort of try to set those terms of trade, which I discussed at the start of today's broadcast, um, so that everybody's on that sort of level playing field, using the same language, talking in the same terms that will allow for a a global system. Um, Because essentially, I think we have reached a tipping point now where to, to go on the Internet, the services you're accessing do need to know broadly either your age or at least your age range. Um, unless they are offering the most innocent of services, perhaps a, a website with nothing but nursery rhymes and not even scary nursery rhymes, but only nice, gentle, kids safe nursery rhymes. Otherwise, frankly, you need to know the age of your user. And we're trying to make that as as simple and straightforward as possible through a an open and competitive um, market um, of multiple providers, um, which will, of course, put downward pressure on pricing. So this isn't going to become something which is prohibitively expensive either. Um, and uh, you know, so far, it all seems to be coming together. But as, as, as we've discussed today, there's a lot of irons in the fire, a lot, a lot of things we've got to sort of coordinate. Um, and that's what we're doing as a trade association um, to try to steer this thing um, in partnership, obviously, with governments and regulators um, to a, a long term viable solution um, that just allows the Internet to be a safer place for kids. Well, thank you so much, Ian. This has really been helpful. So uh, Ian Corby, Executive Director of the Age Verification Provider Association, thank you so much for joining us today on this Privacy Pass podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We will cover this subject in more depth in our free webinar sponsored by Meta on the afternoon of Wednesday, 16th of March. The title is Helping Young People to Better Protect Their Privacy and Safety Online. Register, I invite you to register on www privacylaws.com. This webinar will be recorded and will be available after the event via the PLMB website. So taking part, you'll see all the details on our website, but we have in this on this webinar uh, both academics and uh, a regulator from the Irish Data Protection Commission. And our PLMB's next event will be Making Your Case in Europe defending against data protection authority inquiries and sanctions. And this will be both in person at the offices of Latham and Watkins in central London on the more, and online, and it will take place on the morning of 18th of May. Moving on to Privacy Laws and Business 35th Anniversary Conference, Winds of Change. This will also be in person and online and will take place the 4th, 5th and 6th of July at St. John's College, Cambridge. And again, you can see all the information and register at privacylaws.com. So thanks today to Ian Corby and Tom Cooper, PNB's deputy editor, who has organised the recording of this podcast. We look forward to seeing you, everyone, at our future events. And you can keep up to date by subscribing to our monthly reports and our news also via our website. So that brings us to the end of this podcast. So thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 